Welcome back. Tuesday, October 27th, 2020, as we head into our third hour this Tuesday. There's nothing like talking with old friends, and it's even better when they're smart and good old friends. And that is Hugh and Lewis Hallman. Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe and a prominent lawyer in town. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Insight Analytics. InsightAnalyticsLLC.com is his website, and he spells Insight, I-N-C-I-T-E. We talk COVID and politics every Tuesday of our third hour. Hugh and Lewis, welcome. Thanks for joining us, as always. It's a delight to be with you, delight. Great. Let me do it this way, because I I know you guys are... um, you're not in studio as you usually are. We're in remote, remote location. Let me start with Hugh and have Lewis uh, respond if I can. Hugh, um, as the uh, election nears, I have noticed, you tell me if you've noticed the same thing. Perhaps you haven't. But I have noticed an increased coverage on COVID of the cases that are among us, the cases rising. I've noticed the increased coverage of it, the increased alarmism of it. The three of us have written a piece on this. We'll see if it makes the light of day. But tell me what your sense of that is and where we stand with COVID right now. I'm actually seeing two narratives now playing out, and it is an increased focus on cases, uh, which has always been the uh, challenge for our reporting, uh, that cases seem to be what matters in trending, not uh, the total death counts, mortality rates, and a continuing failure to recognize that what we're reporting on is case fatality rate, meaning the total number of cases that have been uh, tested uh, for and that have been revealed, and using that number to divide mortality. But the second narrative I think that is playing out is sort of an anticipation of a change in the administration so that a Biden administration might have an easier time changing the direction uh, that the left has pushed on us of lockdowns and other closures. So I've seen a trend in uh, the even the leading uh, newspapers and, and periodicals from the left, uh, the New York Times, for example, and The Economist, uh, the British, uh, what used to be really a business magazine and is now more of a political magazine, they are beginning this narrative, and I've seen it over about the last 10 to 12 days, where the the conversation is picking up on the World Health Organization statement about three weeks ago that maybe lockdowns are a bad idea yeah. and that instead we need to take a much more modest approach. I think that being laid down as a, as a theme so that if there is a change in administration, the new administration doesn't have to take the kind of draconian measures that have been pushed on this country uh, and certainly in some other places around the world. Uh, and that would make it easier then to try to improve the outcomes uh, for the economy and for people. What do you think, Lou? Yeah, let me throw it to Lewis for a response. And also, Lewis, since you're so good at the at the at the math part of this, uh distinguish what your dad meant when he was talking about the case fatality ratio and why that's not maybe the best thing to be looking at, too. You're very sure, absolutely. So I, I broadly agree that uh, a lot of the coverage now is, is focusing on, uh, on cases. I would actually generalize the point a little bit and just make the point more broadly that the coverage tends to focus on whichever set of, of several statistics, whether it's, you know, insufficient testing hospitalization spikes, deaths, or cases, whatever it happens to be, 
that can be used to present the situation um, as as uh, uh, favorably for the presenter as possible. So if one is trying to paint the picture that we are panicking and, and should panic, then you will you will harp on whichever of those set of statistics you know most elude that point rather than trying to look at everything and get a really balanced sense. And then the other point that I would make on top of that is that you know, we get lots and lots and lots of, uh, of predictions of dark winters and other uh, uh, such calamities that are, that are, you know, coming down the pipe purportedly. But we really don't ever get any kind of follow-up on these predictions. This is, a, this is a problem common with punditry generally. Let me give you a concrete example. So about a month ago, California, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a report released talking about how Due to the doubtless uh, uh, oncoming spike of COVID cases, they were expecting to see about a 90% increase in hospitalizations. Now, it's been a month since that was released. And in fact, rather than a 90% increase in hospitalizations in California, we saw a 14% decline over that period. But there's never any kind of accountability or follow-up or anything like that. Rather, you have people sort of uh, uh, suing politically and and trying to drive the story forward, uh, uh, irrespective of what actually is going on. Now, as to the case fatality portion of this, uh, as uh, my dad said, the the issue is that you know we have a a given number of deaths and we've got a given number of cases. The issue, though, is that we don't actually know how many cases there have been. We only know the ones that we have found. So right. for instance, if we have found now about 8.7 million cases uh, uh, with the corresponding 225,000 deaths, then that will get you a case fatality rate somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half percent. Now the issue is, is that if the virus is transmitted more broadly throughout the population, then there may have been many more than 8.7 million Infections, just right. we don't know about them because either they were asymptomatic, not tested, not caught, whatever the case may be. And so when talking me... about this case fatality rate, we have to keep in mind that the actual number of, of cases, the denominator in this fraction, when we're talking about deaths divided by total cases, may in fact be far higher, which would then mean that we have a significantly lower case fatality rate than would otherwise be suggested by a raw read of the figures. Perfect, and I'll Let add me to give that. You, an Q, you wanted of, to break in. Yeah, go that ahead. Admission. Yeah, you have uh, the economist making the case that uh, folks who want to uh, reopen and focus all of our efforts and attentions on the elderly, the people we know who are succumbing to the virus and the disease that results from it, uh, as they're beating them about the head and shoulders that they're being irresponsible for proposing that we reopen, they write things like this. About 80 percent, and I'm quoting, about 80 percent of those infected with SARS-CoV-2 have mild symptoms or none at all. The vast majority of these mild cases are not getting tested, even in countries with ample testing capacity. That statement is an admission by the economist that it believes that the total number of cases that are actually likely to have occurred, that is infections, as opposed to, to COVID-19 disease, that the total infections from SARS-CoV-2 would be five times higher than reported. 
So instead of 8.5 million in the United States, we'd have something closer to 49 million in the United States. And if that's the denominator, well, thank you, Lou. See, there he goes. If you take that and you divide the mortality rate then by the the by five, Lewis's earlier statistic of about a two and a half percent case mortality rate becomes 0.5 percent, which in the last hour, Seth, you were noting, uh, is the sort of average uh, likelihood of death or your likelihood of survival if you have become infected with SARS-CoV-2 and or COVID-19 is 99.95. Okay. And that's if you include everybody. If you then understand that 80% of our deaths are coming in the elderly, then for the rest of us, the risk of death is quite small and it starts to converge toward flu. Right. And this is what's so interesting to me, Hugh, when you outline that there may be a sense of interesting shift from the European model, or at least the Europe, the World Health Organization, it's translating into the magazines like The Economist. They're almost preparing us. They're almost preparing us for the wisdom that you just said to be the conventional wisdom. Up until now, that has not been the conventional wisdom. I think well, that's I'm sure right. it may become the conventional wisdom if, about, a, about November 4th is probably what I, I would anticipate. It. Say, I'm sorry, Lewis, say that again. Oh, I, I'm certain that it will likely become conventional wisdom around about November 4th. Yeah, I, I yes, <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> I think so, too. But, Hugh, the large point here, the large point here is that even the small numbers, the small percentages, without sounding, and we always caution, we don't want to come off callous about this because you, you, you don't want to get this if you, if, if you can avoid it, obviously, obviously, obviously. But without sounding callous, the fatality ratios may be far lower than even the low numbers we're citing. That's correct, it, precisely because as we learn about the infection of uh, people from SARS-CoV-2 who don't show symptoms, that is, they never develop COVID-19, the disease, and we start adding them to the base, we'll have a better understanding of the real risks that this, this virus and this disease pose to us. But since the beginning of this pandemic, there has been an absolute drumbeat to, toward panic and to lock Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have Lewis and Hugh Hallman with us. Let me start with Lewis on this one um, and then get your response, Hugh. Lewis, you said something that I think is really the key to a lot of understanding with COVID and the election, COVID in, in politics, and I'd love you, love for you to expand on it if you don't mind. A lot of this will change, you said, on November 4th. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. So the the... Real big issue that we're having right now is that, and I, I think I've said something like this before, uh, but one of the things that has really colored the response to the pandemic, not only from the the, uh, the government, but also sort of the larger media landscape, is that we haven't really dealt with this crisis at all away from and outside the cover of the sort of political envelope that we've been in, where we've always sort of had to deal with it in the context of 
being in a dead heat for one of the most contentious presidential elections potentially in our, our, our country's history. Um, and so, you know, there, there hasn't really been the ability to step away from this and really talk about it from sort of an honest policy perspective, because to do so, you know, there's the perpetual fear that we have to see ground on, our, on, on a given talking point to the other side. And so that, that really does, I think, prevent us from, from examining the situation more honestly. Hugh, you've probably you you have the most political experience of all of the three of us, and I guess the question I would ask is, uh, I, I'd like to ask is, have you seen a natural phenomenon like this? Is that the right way to categorize it? You know what I'm saying? Ever <laughs> anything like this ever been so politicized, so so turned into different partisan camps? The only thing that I think gets close to it is the Vietnam War. Okay. And it, it pivoted. It was a fascinating challenge uh, because the Vietnam War arguably started a little bit under Eisenhower but then built up during Kennedy's era, and the 64 presidential campaign became a, a, uh, a, a campaign about that race and perhaps the very first really – a modern-day smear ad was the ad against Barry Goldwater, uh, effectively asserting that he was going to use the uh, atomic weapons and would uh, cost the Earth uh, its sanctity. Uh, and that that's about the worst I've seen in my life. Even during um, the uh, Nixon years with Watergate, uh, certainly it was partisan, but there were more folks, I think, willing to cross the aisle to figure out what was going on. Contrast that with the Russia investigation and, and the pure partisanship involved in that. So it, it saddens me. I cannot quite figure out um, how we undo this and get ourselves back to a position where the sides can have real conversation and make better policy choices. It doesn't help that the the press has become a tool in that battle because uh, the major uh, newspapers even are now fighting for share. And so from CNN to even Fox, everybody's pitching to their small now remaining demographic and merely feeding them the red meat that that side wants to have. And that loses our ability and capacity to have conversations. Let me stay with you a second. Give you an example. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, so we've got the New York Times as an example uh, that no longer, I think, can uh, carry the mantle of being a newspaper reporting news when almost all of it is uh, uh, some piece of this filter of news. So, for example, on their COVID continuing uh, COVID coronavirus coverage, one of their headlines is 364,000 missing deaths from the coronavirus outbreak. And this is a story that effectively tries to convince one that there are 364,000 more coronavirus deaths that have been reported, including in the United States. But what the story really tells you is that when you look at deaths beginning in March to now, there are about 364,000 more people around the world who have died than would have been expected. Well, when you've got a population as large as this planet has, that's a rounding error. I don't mean to be quite so cynical, but it yeah. is. Uh, 
And like our Arizona Republic coverage, it says something just as amazing. Our Arizona Republic like to report on uh, hospitalizations and say that the beds were filled with coronavirus victims and other patients. And equally, the New York Times uh, talks about these excess deaths as these are total deaths from COVID-19 as well as from other causes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what is this supposed to be telling us? In addition, they start their excess death count from after the virus began. And if you go to the two months before they start counting, we had a massive reduction in the expected number of deaths because societies were all closed down. And so the data is a, is a flux of a bunch of aggregates and different numbers. And the reality is, why would a newspaper put this kind of a story out and really just be editorializing on why the United States is a screwed up mess and it's Donald Trump's fault? I want to come back. Editorialize. I want, I want to come back to you on that point in a second, but let me interject it with something for Lewis before, just because I'll forget it if I don't. Lewis, the research I've done shows that even all these numbers you and your dad and I use and, and, and explain and toss out, even they may not be quite representative because our ability to treat the coronavirus infection has changed and we're thinking of these numbers and populations as a constant while our therapies have uh, dramatically improved I've seen different estimates but one estimate I think that sticks in my mind I think it came from NPR said we we, we now have a 20 percent better chance of helping someone avoid death if they attract the coronavirus than we did in March. So even that makes our numbers um, look worse than they are, if you will. Can I, I the music's coming and I, and I raised a big point. If I can ask you to hold that thought till the other side of the break, I'd like you to do it. If I made it clearly enough, my point is no, we're I, using constant numbers over a general population with a lot of variables that have changed for the better, for the better. Let me pick up on that when we come back with you and Lewis Holman. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. If you're in the midst of selling your home and it's not going well, or if you are thinking about selling your home, you want to call my friend James Wexler of JMG Real Estate. He is the real estate agent that sells more homes, over $500,000, than any other agent in Phoenix and Scottsdale. He guarantees to sell your home at market value or pay the difference. And for maximum convenience, he can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer within 24 hours of you reaching him. You can reach him at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's jameswexler.com. Lewis Hallman, on the way to the break, I was asking you a question about improved therapies that I think also distort the numbers in other words, show the numbers today in a, in a light that is uh, uh, more frightening than need be, if I can put it that way. We're using these infection fatality and case fatality ratios as if this is a constant from March to now, but it's not. Things have improved such that an outbreak of, let's say, 100 cases in March isn't the same thing as an outbreak of 100 cases in October, if you follow what I'm saying. You, do you see that as well? No, that's exactly right, Seth. And it's not just on the therapeutic side. It really goes through 
almost all of the relevant statistics we're talking about. Let me give you a few concrete examples. Okay. Let's think about hospital utilization for a yeah. moment. Yeah. Now, back in uh, May and June here in Arizona, you know, we, we had all of these dire predictions that our hospital capacity would be overwhelmed because more than 80% of our beds were used by, as my father likes to point out, COVID and all other patients. Right. But the issue here is that the composition of that utilization has been changing over time. So today, even, we still have 84.5% of our inpatient beds filled with COVID patients and all others. However, only 7.7% of the beds are actually filled with the COVID patients. This is down from, say, a full third uh, back at the height of the pandemic in July. Another good example of this I'd like to, to share with you is uh, uh, the uh, death reporting themselves. So specifically, let me point to the example of the United Kingdom. In the middle of August or so, uh, the United Kingdom actually changed the standard that they used to count deaths. They moved from uh, anyone who had po tested positive and then later dying uh, being a COVID death to a standard wherein uh, uh, you had to have tested positive within 28 days uh, oh, yeah. okay. of, of, uh, of succumbing. Okay. And with this change, they pulled off 5,400 deaths total. That was almost 12.5% of all of the deaths that they had been reporting up to that point. Now, contrast this with the United States, which then reports deaths uh, if, if one was tested positive out to 60 days prior. This is a big difference. Yeah. There's actually a study from the University of Oxford that, showed, that breaks down these changes, and they show that, that during the month of July and August when they were reviewing this change in the United Kingdom, that change actually reduced the seven-day rolling average of deaths by about 60% over the, that period of time. has been doing so since then as well. And so one of the reasons that we're not you know, that we're seeing all kinds of different numbers from Europe and everywhere else is that that's exactly what we're seeing, is that everyone is counting them differently and getting an honest apples-to-apples -apples comparison is almost impossible here. That's that's a really important point, and it's also interesting that it's not apples-to-apples -apples even when we compare state-to-state -state and the way the states are reporting and the states are doing their press conferences it's very maddening. One can go to the CDC, it's fairly laborious, and use their accounting from each state. Um, and, 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 and one hopes, one hopes that that's apples to apples. But when you read what, say, Scott Johnson at Powerline is asking at the press conferences they're doing in Minnesota, it takes a lot of work for him to elicit from the health director there and from the governor there what these death numbers are and the very point you just raised, Lewis, which, ha which is how long ago was it between their positive test and their death. And he's elicited some fascinating information, which is, yeah, it can go back even farther than what you've said. You could have tested, you could have tested positive some three months or more prior to dying in your 80s, in your 80s, 
from COVID. Hugh, I want to get uh, back to you on a, on a couple political points, if I can, as well. You hear the music. Is that Tony Orlando? We'll be right back with more from Hugh and Lewis Hallman. Don't go away. More than ever, it's really important to keep your energy up, to keep your health up, and to boost your immunity. I do it with Balance of Nature every single day. One daily dose gives me tens of thousands of vital nutrients made from all good, 100% whole foods, fruits, and vegetables. Just once a day, you'll feel great, you'll have a lot more energy, and you'll be boosting your immunity. Balance of Nature has a great deal right now for new preferred customers, giving you 35% off your first order and free shipping. I love the free shipping part. Give them a call at 800-24-68751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. We're talking with Hugh and Lewis Holman. Hugh, I wanted to go back to something you said about the political aspect of this. And you talked about, um, I guess, the politicalization of <clears throat> end-of-the-world scenarios. <clears throat> First really coming on the scene... In 1964, you were talking, I think, about the Daisy ad, the famous Daisy ad. And exactly. It, yeah, and it, it's been tried. People forget it, but you can see it online if you want. They did it to uh, Ronald Reagan in 1984. I think it was actually worse than the Daisy ad. It was a kindergarten or first grade, very young-aged group of school students watching nuclear missiles go off from their classrooms in America. They've done this um, to us from time to time, us being Republicans. And yet, yet, I, as a foreign policy debate, that's in my mind in some ways even separate from – uh, uh, something that was that that outside of perhaps a man eating a bat in a wet market, not really a human caused de- decision, not really a volitional decision. War, you know, defense policy. We had, in other words, we had a big pandemic, flu pandemic in 1957-58, killed more Americans as a percent of the population than this has. Virtually no one remembers it, and it wasn't politicized. We had the 1968. Uh, uh, Hong Kong flu, which killed, uh, I guess, about 100,000 Americans in 1968. And it's it's barely remembered, and we certainly didn't politicize it. There has been a ramping up, hasn't there, of this left-wing notion, I I call it a left-wing notion, that volitional or not, deliberate decision-making or not, we are living in the worst of times, always on the precipice of destruction, be it a population bomb, be it uh, a nuclear winter in the 80s, be it uh, environmental catastrophe in the next 10 years. There's always something about that in the left that's played against conservatives. And this, am I wrong to see this as an element of that, as part and parcel, as a discovered potentiality of that? Am I overstating? No, I I think you're thinking about it the right way, and that is that uh, the the premise of these crises is that the solution can only be provided by collective action and government. Right. And that's what the most troubling 
about how this is being handled. Oh, that's brilliant. We, Go with that. Yeah, that's smart. We wrote an editorial uh, near the beginning of this talking about the fact that President Trump had made a mistake and first asserted that he would make the decision on various actions to be taken and then properly walked it back yeah. and said, no, in fact, under our constitutional structure, governors in the states are to make these decisions, and right. properly so, because each state is different. Right. And we could see that in this pandemic, how it has played out. The folks in the Midwest who are separated significantly more than the people in the Northeast and in Los Angeles and other similarly dense places uh, have had a very different scenario, and it properly should be handled very differently. Uh, in the last hour, one of uh, your callers talked about the fact that the folks in the mountains, and I yeah. certainly had that experience going up to Greer and other places in and around the state, uh, where the, the population is behaving differently. They are more socially distant to begin with, yeah. but they also have a, a different attitude toward what's happening. More and stoic. in this instance, yeah. when yeah. the solution always is government, that is part of a worldview that uh, – some people have, that problems can only be solved collectively and through uh, collective action, and that requires government action. I happen to disagree. Most of the time, when you try to apply solutions that are one-size-fits-all, uh, the fit is terrible for 80% of the population involved. Uh, certainly, we there have been societies that have tried to create collective solutions, the Soviet Union certainly did it uh, very, very well. You could get a couple of brands of cars, uh, and all of them were bad. Uh, in the United States, you can get cars from around the world, and if you just look in a parking lot, you can see how different people think and what their tastes are and what their choices are for how they balance freedom and liberty against other things. And so I think that's fundamentally why you see the difference uh, in approach here. And you were correct. The 1957 pandemic killed about 116,000 people in the United States when we had a population of 172,000. So yeah. Million, that would yeah. be the equivalent yeah. of about 232,000 today, yeah. and we haven't reached that number. Um, let me stay with you for a second, and then I'll go to Lewis on this, because you each have slightly different political perspectives on, on the spectrum we all, we, we all sit on, the three of us do. But, Hugh... Removing any of your uh, predilections, if you can, do you think the government could have done, the federal government, could have done anything differently here? Well, certainly it could have done a lot of things differently. Whether that would result in a different outcome is very That's what questionable. I, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, we're seeing right now waves uh, surging again in Europe. And my operating premise remains that randomness happens. And as Lewis pointed out in an earlier segment, you've got the press pointing to whichever data point they can use to make the worst-case scenario yeah. rather than a rational approach to looking at data that we're trying to bring to your listeners. And when you look at only selective items to make your point, you miss out on the big picture. And what we're now seeing is that there are certain places in the country that had earlier waves and are experiencing them again, and places that had earlier waves that aren't. In fact, again, back to the New York Times, uh, they are beating up all the folks in the Midwest for not behaving differently, and yet uh, the Midwest had very small uh, surges in the first round, and that means they have a much larger percentage of their population that have not yet likely been infected. So they have a much higher probability of being infected in the current environment, 
in contrast to places where a larger percentage of the population has been infected already. And so one would expect this if you're thinking rationally about the data, but if your point is to make political points, then you're not going to think rationally about the data because it doesn't serve your purposes. Perfect. We'll be right back with the concluding thoughts. Thanks for spending some of your hour with us. It's a delight, as always, on Tuesdays to have the Holmans with us. Lewis, uh, any way you want to take it, I'll give you concluding thoughts here first. Sure. So I'm wondering why the media is now incapable of acting as news and is rather stringing us along by the nose. And I think it has to do with the fact that its power has really broken and shifted over the last couple of decades. Media organizations, newspapers used to have their own production, their own distribution. They were were insulated and and they were geographically constrained from one another. So they talked to everyone within a region. Now, none of that's true. They don't get their own subscriptions anymore. They don't get their own revenue anymore. They don't even really get their own stories anymore. And they're not talking to someone, not talking to everyone within a constrained geographic area. They're talking to a, a slice that is driven um, by, by market. And so this forces them to go into the business of telling us what we want to hear rather than what we need to know. And so it seems to me that they are fundamentally incapable of acting in the way that they used to. Nicely put. Hugh? We are in an era where the differences between Republicans who value liberty uh, are being tested by folks on the left, generally Democrats, who prefer equality. And I'm Think about the founders of this country who, even in that debate, understood that the individuals of this society were in a better position to make their determinations about how they would pursue their lives to facilitate liberty or equality. And unfortunately, in the last uh, uh, couple of decades, we've seen quite the resurgence of the use of government power which is the imposition of equality as the value and at the expense of liberty, I think will be badly served. And my only hope is that I live long enough to see this cycle turn yet again uh, to a return of the likes of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. You will, Hugh. You will. Lewis Holman, Hugh Holman, thank you so very much. And the rest of you, thank you so very much for spending some of your afternoon with us. Until tomorrow, stay strong, God bless, and class dismissed.